This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to a Twin Peaks podcast, a podcast about Twin Peaks. I'm Jeff Jensen, TV critic with Entertainment Weekly. And I'm Darren Franich, senior writer for Entertainment Weekly. And Jeff, we are not wealthy people. We drive cheap terrible cars <laughs> we are the 99 percenters um and i have to say speaking for the 99 percent this episode of twin peaks part six which we're going to talk about today i feel a little more confident talking about it than i have uh, the first five parts oh, really? i feel like there was a lot of you sh- i sort of saw you tweeting about this last night and i'm sure this may be a sort of bright sighting opinion but i feel like not a whole lot of plot but a lot of mood and i feel like the moods i really enjoyed and i'm maybe happy there's less plot to dig into than, th- than there was last week how did you feel about part six of uh, twin peaks jeff yeah, I think in last week's podcast, I made some observation of last week's episode by saying that we didn't get a lot of plot development. Things seem to move forward by inches. This week, things seem to move forward by centimeters. <laughs> and uh, we got the introduction to Diane, but that's all we got. Um, I, I think that, you know, we, we, we got more of Agent Cooper trapped in the life of Dougie and. Yes, he seemed to get back into Agent Cooper's black and white suit, but that's all that happened. So he's moving, you know, again by centimeters back toward Cooper. Hawk uh, finally, quote unquote, reconnected with his heritage through some um, pretty uh, absurd stuff and found pages which might be from Laurel Palmer's diary stuffed um, in between the cracks of a toilet stall in the sheriff's department. And then, you know, there were other things involving the new characters, but still, right, not a lot of massive forward movement, but as a collection of scenes designed to generate a mood and how those scenes work together and cross-cut together to create mood, I found myself really absorbed and really affected by it to the degree that I, I, you know, in a way that I'm still puzzling over, we are recording this podcast just the morning after the episode. So I'm in, in some ways still digesting it. It felt like it meant something, you know. It was it was about the moods it was making. It was about the themes that it was the theme of randomness or whether there's design to the world and other things. Uh, I I was really affected by it, even though like story wise, you could probably sum it all up in a paragraph. <laughs> most television shows nowadays, certainly most dramas don't try to really create that sense of stasis. Quite the opposite. Most dramas are kind of like all about kind of plot momentum and moving things forward. And I very much appreciated that. This was definitely an episode where there was a lot of stasis, but it was interesting stasis. Um, but uh, maybe we should begin uh, on a moment of literal stasis. Um, we picked up with Dougie slash Dale right where we 
we left him at the end of part five, staring longingly up at that cowboy statue. And I believe sort of trying to form his uh, master's jacket into like, like sort of like trying to form his sleeve into the shape of a gun. Was that what he was doing when the security guard came up to him, <laughs> Jeff? Yeah, I, I really couldn't understand what, what Dougie was doing in that moment. I thought that, you know, he'd been standing there for so long waiting for a ride or waiting for something to happen or just getting lost in the gaze of the lawman looking to the horizon um, that he was getting maybe a little cold um, in, in the Vegas night. And so he was trying to like get his hand up into his sleeve to get warm. I also kind of got the feeling of a guy like caught in a straitjacket a little bit, you know, and that's how often uh, when I engage David Lynch and very Lynchian things and I, and I'm not exactly sure what he's what's what's happening here i try to make sense of it emotionally instead of rationally and so i was just kind of like the, the feeling of a guy trapped in his jacket and his business jacket with these with these files and I, and and as we've kind of talked about over the past couple of weeks with the, with in this podcast just these themes where it just seems to me that the show is satirizing or interrogating or casting shade on the workaday life of of America um, as if to, to, to critique it and its values and all of that. So just this image of this man, this is this businessman trapped in his suit with his bringing all of his homework home. That's how I kind of related to it. But yes, like that's a good observation. I like the idea that he's, he's playing around, like playing childlike play is also a theme of this episode. So the fact that he's trying to like contort the sleeve of his jacket into a gun is, is, is a good read. I was struck by that scene where I think that in that shot, we never see uh, the lawman's head in this shot. We just see his lower half. So the camera is just observing the legs and his shoes. And something that I never noticed about the statue last week is that you would think that this cowboy guy would be wearing boots, but he seems to be wearing like business shoes. Did you know that? Like notice that? (laughs) No. Loafers. Yeah. Interesting. (laughs) Which I thought was an interesting choice for a cowboy and not to fixate on those details. But again, like you made an observation about that statue last week that, yeah, it was this, it was supposed to evoke the American West and this cowboy, but it's a very corporate statue. It's a piece of like business, like, like plaza art in this general business park. So the idea that this cowboy is wearing a businessman's shoes, sort of the, <laughs> the corporate world's appropriation of that imagery in the episode where we're continuing to see kind of like our heroic Agent Cooper trapped in this businessman's body and kind of casting some shade again on the corruption or the compromises, moral compromises of, of everyday life. Um, I thought that was an interesting bit of imagery. Yeah, and you know, something you said just kind of sparked with me. Interesting that in that framing of the shot where you were just focusing on the lower part of the cowboy's body, the camera itself seems to be kind of decapitating the cowboy, yeah. which given that decapitation seems oddly rooted into at least one aspect of this season, i.e. 
like Major Briggs and the body. Like, you know, as we've discussed, Jeff, you know that my theory is that we're building up to part 14 is an extended soliloquy from Major Briggs's decapitated head. So we'll we'll see. This this may be a further clue in that direction. Darren, one other thing about this scene before we move Dougie home. We go, we're going to spend an hour just talking about the opening 30 seconds of the show. I love the cowboy statue. I love the cowboy statue. And I love how um, Angela Badalamenti, his score that played a lot throughout this scene and, and throughout most of the Dougie moments of this episode, his score sounded like incredible and also kind of like the love music that plays on the soundtrack when Sonny Crockett is hooking up with someone. It was this weird like 80s. It was this weird like sort of like, you know, 80s saxophone synth. Like I, I absolutely loved it. It was so unusual. <laughs> and that's exactly what I was going to point out about that scene. Like, a number of people have been, and we've talked about this too, have been commenting on the relative that Angela Badalamenti's score has, we haven't gotten a lot of it. Um, there's just not, that was a huge part of the original Twin Peaks, and we don't hear it as much in the new series. Um, and, and people have been kind of wondering if that is a deliberate choice by Lynch. I mean, I think everyone kind of assumes that eventually the action of this series is just going to ultimately, everything is going to move toward Twin Peaks in the end game. And so that maybe because the music is so associated with that town, that's part of the design of the show is that maybe we're going to ramp up the music. That said, this episode, there seemed to be a lot of it in the very melodramatic tones and strains of the original series, but a lot of that kind of like soft, mournful, saxophony jazz and we, we begin it right here in this opening scene. Dougie then gets taken home, yet again taken home by some kind of local authority figure. Um, I like how Janie E seems, it almost seems as if like this happens all the time. Like <laughs> Dougie just sort of in some kind of stupor or, you know, on his latest trip to Benderville just gets taken home by someone. G- great sort of sequence that if you're color tracking, I thought was really interesting where he was sort of eating sandwiches with Janie E. Uh, there was a yellow phone that they answered at one point, yellow plates, a lot of interesting sort of color tones going on here. This was like about the moment when I said, okay, it seems to me like this this episode, we're going to spend a lot of time with the Jones family. And indeed, he sort of went upstairs to say goodnight to Sonny Jim. Loved how um, Sonny Jim, the sort of production design inside of his room, there was this interesting feel of a, you know, a lot of retro stuff. He was wearing a pajama with 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 cars on it. Sonny Jim seems to really like cowboys, uh, the way that I gather most most children nowadays uh, maybe know less about cowboys than they do about minions and Pirates of the Caribbean. But like, you know, I, I like to, we're kind of furthering that idea of, of, of these this cowboy imagery circling around Dougie. And then we had um, more of what I think is going to be the, <laughs> the sort of silliest yet oddly most endearing running gag of this season, which is people being shocked by technology that is like 15 or 20 years old. In this case, <laughs> Dougie really, really liking the uh, clap on light. I, you know, given Lynch's eternal fascination with lamps, I, I found there to be something oddly funny about just how just how like weirdly low-key the uh, comedy here was. Um, but uh, Jeff, I know we were kind of texting last night. You had a lot to say about like this theme of childhood in this episode and, and about, you know, perhaps growing up. How did you kind of feel about Dougie with Sonny Jim and how how that whole kind of sequence played out inside of the uh, Jones household. 
Yeah, there, there seemed to be this theme emphasized a lot last night that it was reflecting a lot on mortality, um, but it was also reflecting, it was kind of uh, comparing, contrasting kind of themes of innocence and childlike nature and childlike play with the demands and the responsibilities of the adult world and how adultness is almost like a, a corrupting influence. And this scene kind of, this whole sequence kind of like uh, introduced that and even captured that from from the moment of of Dougie being brought home and being brought in by Janie. Like just real quick there, um, I love how Cooper was obsessed with with the policeman's badge, kept on pointing at it, and um, a- another kind of sign that he's recognizing the symbols of his past life. But yeah, he sits down at the table with Janie E, um, and they eat. And I love your observation about the color coding. I was specifically struck by the lamp also that's on the table, which is this like golden yellow lamp illuminating their, you know, yellow plates and all of those manila yellow folders. You know, in previous podcasts and my and my other recaps, like I've talked about how uh, for me, what what that symbolizes is is, is is creamed corn, you know, the Garmin Bosia, the pain and sorrow of the world. And it seems like these episodes thematically through color coding keep on kind of pointing at the things about modern life that shackle us to uh, worldly living and uh, as opposed to relationships or love or higher order things of uh, the stuff of the world and cream corn, the color of cream corn, yellow gold, kind of like illuminating all of this. But throughout all of this scene, you know, Dougie and Janie E are like married, but their relationship feels so much more like a mother-child relationship. She mothers him. She's not like wife to him, it seems. Uh, even kind of bringing him in from the cops. It was it was less like, oh, my wayward husband got drunk again and the cops had to bring him home. It was more like, oh, my, my wayward teenage son has gone joyriding again and the cops have had to bring him home and like make some lunch and uh, make some a sandwich and so yeah, he goes upstairs to to his son's room and yeah, they have that lovely scene where they're sitting together in that room that is just chock-a-block with all of these boyish childhood motifs. You have the cowboy stuff, the old west stuff on the home, you have the rocket ships on the shelf. You have like yeah, his car pajamas and the star uh, sheets, and he seems to be reading these books with like these blue covers. There's the the one that he's reading. We don't see it. Um, but he's got a stack of them as if he's reading a series of books. And Darren, what that totally reminded me of is 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 the old school blue cover Hardy Boys books, which seems to be completely appropriate given the motifs of that room. But yeah, the, the father-son moment that they have where he shares with them a potato chip, even after the kids said, I brushed my teeth, you know, and but childish Cooper, D- Dougie Cooper gives them the chip anyway. And they have this kind of fun interaction in which they play with the clapper and they're having such a great time. And in the midst of that, you cut now back downstairs to like Janie sitting at the table and she decides to finally open that envelope. And I got the sense from earlier in the sequence that she was almost reluctant to open that envelope. 
afraid of what's inside it. Um, but she finally does, and it's a picture that holds uh, a photograph of Dougie with the prostitute Jade. And she starts yelling at him, Dougie, get down here! And they get down there, and like you know, she scolds him for the photo, but she scolds him more than anything for not paying off the debt that is hanging over their head from what we would later find out to be loan sharks who now are kind of getting at Dougie by blackmailing him with this photo. And the vibe I got, in addition to just a betrayed, hurt wife who is looking at evidence of her husband's adultery, and Cooper, who doesn't really understand what's really at stake here, is like looking at a picture of, of Jade and remembers a person who helps him. And <laughs> Jade gives two rides, and he kind of smiles at the thought of Jade, which just hurts her even more. But the idea that he fell down on his responsibilities, that he didn't pay off the debt, that he failed his the money problems of the family, that kind of like thematically and emotionally kind of tied together the scene of like, you know, childhood Dougie, like playing in innocence and then adulthood, you know, like inserts itself and like and ruins his great moment with his kid. Yeah, like I just liked how all of these things work on multiple levels in, in this scene. I have nothing smart to add to that except that you talking about the blue books inside of Sunny Jim's room makes me think of Project Blue Book, um, which <laughs> clearly proves that <laughs> clearly proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that Sunny Jim is probably a Black Lodge denizen. Um, no, I kind of felt all of that, and what I find interesting too is you know this idea of. You know, Janie E., who, by the way, I have to say, like, Naomi Watts so far, interesting role for her. I almost kind of feel as if the show has kind of cast her to be this kind of archetypal sitcom wife. Like, you know, the kind of person who kind of, you know, sits at home patiently, like, you know, now husband, like, you know, what did you get up to today? Except in this case, her husband is getting up to all kinds of awful sins that could only happen in Las Vegas. We kind of moved from her sort of telling you know, Dale slash Dougie, like, okay, like, you know, you better get to work because on top of everything else, we certainly can't have you losing your job right now. Again, JDE clearly used to a lot of awful things from her husband if this is her kind of response to all of this. Really interesting, sudden thematic shot that also, of course, is a callback to deep Twin Peaks history. We saw a traffic light change from yellow to red. And besides being a callback to the pilot, besides being a callback to, you know, the last time that Laura Palmer sees James in Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, it was also just an interesting bit of, you know, tracking the color narrative of this season because we kind of went from yellow, a scene that felt very yellow, very Garmin Bosia-y, as you said, Jeff, to a scene in the red room. It was almost like the traffic lights were kind of shifting us from one color toned reality to another inside of the red room we picked up yet again with philip gerard the one-armed man who i'm realizing now when we see him almost seems to be sensing something from up above him and i I don't have anything smart to say about that beyond the fact that laura palmer when we first saw her this season seemed to disappear upwards so i'm not entirely clear if we're meant to glean anything about the you know upper or lower level dimensionality of, of the red room from all this darren we're in hell okay that makes sense the, the red room is down in hell and he's looking up into the world above so um so hopefully maybe we get to heaven someday 
we had an interesting moment of Red Room to Dale connection. This sort of happened before inside of the Jones household. The one-armed man, I thought, was, uh, you know, pretty intriguingly straightforward this week. Uh, he sort of told Dale, you have to wake up. Interesting to sort of frame it like that. It seems as if we're meant to understand, okay, like, Dale is not a kind of memory-wiped John from Cincinnati sponge. Perhaps there is still the real Dale inside, and what we're seeing now is a kind of sleepwalking. And then he also said, don't die, don't die, don't die, which is, you know, what I tell everyone when I when I say goodbye to them, Jeff, just to kind of, you know, just to kind of send them off on their on their way. Um, maybe Maybe I'd be interested to know your feelings on this. I'm sure there are people who are like feeling very frustrated with the Dougie of this season. I kind of go back and forth on it. I think the fact that I love how Kyle McLaughlin is playing him and the fact that I kind of like the Jones household has kind of definitely made me, you know, more intrigued by an episode like this where we spend a lot of time with those characters. It did feel like the one-armed man appeared here just as almost kind of a message to be like, hey, like, watch this space. Something's going to happen here. Maybe not this week, but but soon. Was was that kind of your feeling, uh, you know, with the kind of Red Room interlude there? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, this idea that the show is speaking back to us a little bit and maybe our own frustrations with, you know, how long are we going to stay with Cooper trapped in Dougie and when are we going to get him to come out? Uh, this is another episode where I think it played knowingly with that tension um, in the Dougie scenes in particular, some later, you got the sense that like, you know, something is going to trigger him. And, and he's going to finally just snap to it and wake up. Like like Mike said, uh, again, like y- you do wonder if that Red Room scene combined with the fact where later in the episode, we finally get Cooper back into the black suit, where it's the show signaling to us that, yes, he's on that road. Be patient with us. At the same time, again, from that thematic read where I kind of, look at Cooper as Dougie as this reincarnated life and he's going through this maybe accelerated or maybe not accelerated enough education um, where he's in this childlike state and he's growing up, right? What I found interesting about this scene is where he says, you know, like, yeah, you have to wake up. Don't die. Don't die. Don't die. You can look at that in the context of what we know about Cooper drama, which is is that you know you know that Cooper and him has to wake up and he has to survive. We know that for him to flourish, Dirty Cooper must die. So you can look at it as Mike just cheering him on, like win that fight, win that fight, win that fight. But I think in the context of the episode, what you kind of saw instead is is that what Mike might be actually doing in that moment is maybe sensing or observing that Cooper is struggling in his readjustment back to the world and in this sort of like state that he's in right now. And that if he doesn't rise to the occasion of surviving these struggles, that he, he, he might not even make it to any kind of confrontation with Dirty Cooper. So, you know, he's going to have to gain some faculties here in order to survive. So, What was more interesting to me than the words in that scene was the motion that Mike was doing, kind of like this waving his arm at Cooper as if he's trying to like cast some magic 
on him. And that's when we get to these scenes right after that sequence where Cooper starts, um, Dougie Cooper, whatever we're going to call him, like opens up these files and starts looking at them and starts seeing almost like these magic snowflakes fall on certain key lines. And he starts scribbling them with childlike scribble, like uh, lines and pictures of ladders and stairways leading up. Um, It's almost like what I got the sense from that scene and this is an observation more in retrospect, is that Mike is giving him some kind of powers in order to the, the jungle of, of, of adult living. You know, you could argue that in the allegory of reincarnated Cooper that is progressing through life and reaching some kind of maturity that will probably culminate in his full restoration of his mind, we're in the college years. <laughs> you know, he's, he's learning a craft. He's just gained the skills that he needs to survive somehow in the modern world, but on his own terms, in his own idiosyncratic way. So it ends up becoming an allegory of the artist, too, and the artist kind of like living according to himself and maintaining that connection to his childhood uh, inspiration and sincerity, but bringing that forward into his adult life. Um, So we get an allegory for David Lynch then, which I've kind of argued in my recaps is a major kind of theme in all of this season of Twin Peaks, which is like, you know, like Lynch reflecting on his life, his artwork, his nature, his, his, his identity as an artist and his legacy and even his own mortality through a story that's allegorical, metaphorical, or sort of these abstractions that he's creating. So that's how I kind of make sense of Mike. <laughs> Jeff, I mean, you know, it's an essential part of every hero's journey from the Epic of Gilgamesh through Hercules' Twelve Labors. When the hero undertakes the challenge of uncovering insurance fraud, that's when <laughs> you really get to the core. I, You know, I, I'm always very intrigued by how the narrative of Cooper is this sort of modern day King Arthur figure. And of course, you know, Janie E was meeting the criminals at the corner of Guinevere and Merlin. I love how the episode is sort of continuing this idea that their neighborhood is this weirdly Arthurian uh, cast suburb. And I do like how if this part of the hero's journey, this kind of reclamation of himself takes place entirely within the world of hotshot Las Vegas, uh, you know, insurance. I'm, I'm very intrigued by that. I, I do like the kind of attention that we're spending there. Um, um, before we move on from Dougie real quick, just, just real quick, I just want to uh, touch on this because I know that people are talking about it. Once again, we get these moments, and you kind of touched on it, that sort of um, alluded to what was Dougie like before Cooper took over his life? And, you know, the, when the cops uh, returned uh, Dougie home, they make, make this mention that he appears disoriented. And Janie E says, and that's on a good day. And then in a previous episode, we heard her say, are you having one of your episodes again? So we're getting these lines that suggest Dougie's a little spaced out and we know why. Because someone has taken over his life. Um, what we kind of don't know is, is that if he has these kinds of spells in the past and he's not acting himself, does it look exactly like what we're seeing now or does it look a little different? And I, I don't know, honestly, Darren, if the show is ever going to be terribly interested in sort of explaining the mechanics of Dougie and how he worked as a sort of like manufactured double for Dirty Cooper. Um, But it kind of made me wonder 
and just to be clear, I don't I don't feel like I need that. I, I like him as as sort of how they're using him now. And if they never explain any of his past, I'm kind of okay with that. But it made me wonder if like Dirty Cooper occasionally like took over Dougie. Like if maybe he had the ability to to like switch minds with him, like like Dirty Cooper could leave his mind and occupy the mind of Dougie for a while and then kind of use Dougie in Vegas to pursue some kind of work down there. You know, like he's got these these doubles all around the world, maybe, and he's able to switch his mind into them to do work at any one time. But yeah, like I know some people are talking about like how did Dougie as a sort of double vessel. What was his life like before Cooper? Um, I don't know if you have any theories on that or if you feel like you need that explained or if the show could just leave it alone. You know, to me, like, and maybe this is just me seeking in vain for the simplest possible solution to things that aren't obviously super insane. I interpret that to mean that he was just like a total drunk who like occasionally showed sure. up to work. Uh, yeah, like, good point. You know, you know, 15 sheets to the wind. Like that's, that's sort of my interpretation. I will say though, you're reminding me that like the way that everyone at work kind of reacts to him and the fact that nobody seems all that put off by the fact that he is, you know, unable to say anything except for what people have already said to him. Maybe there's more there. Very intrigued by the prospect of like there being a Cooper in every city, ultimately leading to the, the parliament of the Council of Coopers. Like I, I'm intrigued by that. But, you know, to me, it's like, if that's true, then why is Dirty Cooper not like, you know, brain swapping right now? So I don't know. That, that I kind of need less Good of point. an explanation for, which naturally, since I don't need any explanation for that, I know we're going to get that explained. Everything else will, will be sort of left vague. Um, but uh, let's move on, Jeff, because we do want to dig into short scene, but quite potent uh, for anyone who is a fan of this show or of David Lynch's filmography or just a fan of like great actors popping up on this show. Um, we saw Albert Rosenfeld on a rainy night. Boy, Albert Rosenfeld, who's been working at his job for a good long time. Gordon Cole does not seem to mind sending his longtime colleague on some really rough, like late night, eat up your weekend type missions. Uh, Rosenfeld had to walk through the rain, literally got a call from from Gordon Cole, who was enjoying a fine Bordeaux. Darren, not only was Gordon Cole Cole enjoying some fine Bordeaux while sending his... his trusted associate Albert on this rainy night mission in 34 degree weather, but he was clearly enjoying some female companionship. Once again, <laughs> nursing this idea that Gordon Cole is, 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 is quite the ladies man. <laughs> <laughs> of course, uh, but only ladies who he can hear without his uh, hearing aid. Uh, that's how he can tell that uh, there is some true spark there. Um, you know, another great standout line from the late, great Miguel Ferrer. Uh, I'm going to say it because apparently we can swear on this podcast. Podcast. Fuck Gene Kelly, you motherfucker. Incredible. Um, he he walked into a bar called Max Vaughn's Bar, uh, which I interpret to be a reference to Max Vaughn Sidow, because in, in, in this world, Max Vaughn Sidow opened up his own chain of uh, bar restaurants. And then he met <laughs> Diane. And Diane, of course, played by the great Laura Dern, the only person she could be playing this season. We'd said our theories about this before. It seems to all add up as far as her history with David Lynch and the idea of Cooper as a kind of, you know, Lynch 
Lynch analog. Um, all she said was, hello, Albert. We shot, we saw that she had this sort of interesting, you know, kind of, I thought it was sort of like almost 80s club kid, white platinum hair, um, which apropos of nothing else made me think of how Leland Palmer's hair turned white in season two. Not sure if we're meant to think that or if it was some kind of stylistic choice, but how did you feel about this, Jeff? This is probably like the big moment of the episode for like, you know, Twin Peaks fans, I would say. Oh yeah. And, and another example where I I read some other people online saying that this episode felt like David Lynch trolling the audience with like stretched out scenes, belaboring plot points that we may be frustrated with, giving us just little tidbits of great moments and then not returning to them. And this is kind of one of them ultimately in retrospect, because this scene is so good that you kept on waiting for the episode to come back to it. But it was just a great introduction to this iconic character that we've heard all about. It kind of completely messed with and played to two different perceptions that you probably have had with Diane over the years. I mean, in the original series, you probably pictured Diane as some kind of like at least I did, so I'll just own it. I won't say that everyone thought this way, but like as some secretarial figure back at FBI HQ, taking these tapes and you know transcribing them, um, and executing like you know the orders that 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 Cooper's giving anything from doing research to doing his expenses. So you can imagine the secretarial like a his money penny, you know. The other image that we kind of got of Diane from a few episodes ago, where you know. When Gordon and and Albert are talking about this person, they have not yet named her Diane, but we all speculated that they were talking about Diane. Like, you know, um, I I know where she drinks. If you've been thinking about that moment since then and you've been kind of wondering like, oh, you know, they're talking about Diane and, oh, she drinks? Like, sounds like she's not doing well. I kind of imagine that if we were going to find Diane, we were going to meet a woman who just was, was not looking good. You know, like maybe like Faye Dunaway in Barfly <laughs> or something, like some kind of really haggard state of being. But instead, like, I don't know if Diane's always looked like this, but the image that we're kind of getting is this, you know, platinum blonde femme fatale with a very striking, interesting look. She's smoking. She's got red, white, and blue nail polish. Um, she's got this uh, designer dress on. Um, this wasn't the dive bar I was expecting. This wasn't exactly the the sad Garmin Bosia uh, soused barfly that I was uh, uh, imagining. But you know, not that she isn't without her sadness or or anything. But it was quite a striking look. And yeah, the fact that it's Laura Dern who is uh you know a, a one of the great Lynch actresses from Blue Velvet but especially Wild at Heart and now in and then uh, Inland Empire you know like I already have a theory that we're going to be playing with the notion that maybe just maybe she represents Sandy um from Blue Velvet but who's who's grown up to be kind of a worldly perhaps corrupted thing um but yeah it was a great introduction like Diane hello Albert like you, you, you wanted more. Um, we didn't get it. And I don't know necessarily if these kinds of tensions that he creates in episodes are good or for our enjoyment necessarily of, of episodes. Um, I, th- you, I, I think that after six hours, we should be expected now that 
these things like operate in very fragmented form. So you get a moment, we might as well just kind of like buckle up for the possibility that we won't get another moment with them for at least an episode or two. But you can't help but want more of that right away. And now that it's all over and I'm retro- and, and looking at it in retrospect and looking at it within the do- design of the episode, like I like that we only got this great moment and that's, all, you know, Lynch recognized it was a really great moment in the cut and just leaves it there for us. But, you know, yeah, interesting. Yeah. I mean, like, I sort of feel like a lot of my experience of the show right now is predicated on, okay, there are things I think we're building to. I think we're building to Dale Cooper returning to Twin Peaks. Now I certainly think we're building to a scene of Kyle MacLachlan and Laura Dern being on screen together at the same time. That is a thing that would be the TV event of the year when and if it happens. So I'm kind of like, okay, if I'm assuming that's going to happen, super excited for that. Then again you know, could not have anticipated so much time being spent on Dougie this season. So yeah, I'm, I'm kind of trying to be in a wait and see mode. Um, but I am excited to sort of see where that sort of leads. Uh, I certainly, Jeff, as far as like expectations, uh, would not have expected that we'd get more time with Lost Highway star Balthazar Getty than with <laughs> Laura Dern this season. And yet, sure enough, we cut over to um, what seems to be, and you, you attract this much more than me. It seems as if there had been a real flag planted about drugs circulating through Twin Peaks a few episodes ago. We really picked that up here with Balthazar Getty, who's playing a character named Red, but I prefer to call him Mr. Bullet Fingers because he keeps on doing that weird thing with, like, you know, the little like gun hand thing. We've seen him do that twice now. Um, clear that he is a sort of major criminal figure, somewhat new in town, I think we can gather. He was working with uh, the skeezy guy we first met last week, whose name is indeed Richard Horn. Whatever layer of the Horn bloodline he comes from, still kind of unclear. I feel like this was just a scene of like, you know, and I think this is in a lot of David Lynch films of just kind of like, you know, pure skullduggery more than anything else. Um, You know, we had this sort of, this implication that Red is perhaps not all there. I almost thought that like, there was a Doctor Strangelove thing happening where one of his hands seemed to not quite move according to the rest of his body, largely seemed to be talking about how... It seems as if, like, really talking about wanting to establish some sort of local empire in Twin Peaks, and Richard Horn seemed to be supporting that. You know, he was just, like, saying, ah, like, you know, these little towns that are a pushover, the sheriff here is 90 years old or something. So, you know, on this kind of tip of this season, whenever we check in on Twin Peaks, there seems to be this generational divide. I, I certainly felt that here, but... um. What was your kind of feeling about this sequence of the sort of criminal element uh, back home in uh, Twin Peaks? Well, first of all, like the the whole scene is sort of heightened and weird. Their behaviors are weird, I think, first and foremost, because they seem to be completely smacked out and stoned on this drug that Red is pushing down from Canada. I think he called it Sparkle. That could have been a nickname for it, but let's call it. So Sparkle, he's, he's pushing Sparkle down. Uh, from Canada, and he's he's recruiting Red as a drug dealer. But yeah, there th- there's this weird macho male posturing going on here. Um, the older figure bullying the younger figure, making sure that they're in line. This is also kind of like a, I felt like a classic depiction of Lynchian, like yeah, scuzzy low life evil people acting kind of like decadently weird in in their despicableness. 
And there's something kind of appropriate then where you have older generation Lynch represented by Balthazar Getty, um, who was one of the stars of Lost Highway, now kind of like schooling and uh, posturing and having this sort of alpha male showdown with our the, the, a new generation Lynch bad boy in Richard, um, who I'm going to call Dick because he's just a big dick. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> you have this real kind of like creepy scene. And Darren, I don't know, but apparently Red is magic. <laughs> the ma- magic man Red and, and that sort of like this we're being funny with this scene. This scene has a freaking mood to it that really builds from kind of absurd, like weird, like two guys just being ridiculous guys, evil guys with each other to increasingly sinister and then like intensely kind of like unsettling and their acting shifts too. And the temperature change on the scene is reflected in this goon that's standing behind Red with that huge, ridiculously huge machine gun. And he's like watching like this drama take place between Red and Richard with this huge smile on his face. Like he just kissed getting a kick out of this ridiculousness. But I don't know if you watch it, but by the end, that smile is gone. And so is ours, I think, because... He flips that dime up in this. At first, he kind of recognize, he identifies the head of the dime as representing red and the tail representing Richard. And he flips that dime up into the sky. And then the diamond just stops at its apex and just spins and spins. And Richard is like mesmerized by it. And then all of a sudden, he feels something like drop in his mouth or form in his mouth. And he takes something out of his mouth and it's the dime. And red is sort of like observing him. And then, like, all of a sudden, the dime, like, falls into his hand, and we'd cut back to Richard, and the dime is gone. And you just... Lynch does something with his actors. I would love to know what he does to direct them to get this effect. But sometimes in the midst of peak Lynch absurdity and comic craziness and what is going on, he's directing them... Like, I imagine, like, like he's telling them something like, I want you to imagine, like, the worst emotional event that you could possibly ever had and just kind of feel it right now. But, like, you could sense in Richard's eyes, he's, he's on the verge of crying and he's having, and, and he's like deeply troubled, deeply unsettled. Something, a battle has been lost here for him. And this, this guy has successfully marked his territory and established the nature of their power, nature of their relationship. And Richard is very kind of defeated by this. But again, kind of tying it with some other themes that we've talked about in this episode, notice the thing that he says, well, throughout the whole episode, he's like high on drugs and he's, and he's ready for this opportunity. He's ready for this moment. Like, like put me to work, sir. And, and all of that. But then Red makes the mistake of calling him a kid. Like, don't call me a kid. Like Richard said. And again, you have this kind of theme of like childhood and like, you know, you know, like, you know, growing. And here we have this sort of theme of a uh, playing out of a young person, like wanting to grow up too fast into adulthood. And that's going to have some like, you know, dangerous consequences. But I, yeah, I was mesmerized by this scene and I was memorized by how it flowed into 
the intercutting scenes that follow. And I don't know if you want to track that or I could take that from here. Um, well, I, I just have to say, like, uh, we've said this before, love how much of this season is derived from Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. And when we saw the sign for the Fat Trout Trailer Park, I, I believe the new <laughs> Fat Trout Trailer Park, my heart skipped a beat. The great Harry Dean Stanton, who, of course, among the other... 10,000 things he's done in his career, has worked with David Lynch for a very long time. I was surprised by how much just seeing him on screen kind of choked me up. He is once again playing the character Carl Rod, this sort of incredible, you know, fifth face on Mount Rushmore looking figure who seems to have been at this trailer park since the beginning of, of time. We quickly discover that Carl's main joy in life now seems to be sort of riding into town about this time every day. And I just thought, I mean, you know, for, for pure emotionality, this scene <laughs> when um, the sort of young man that he is sort of driving with says, ah, you know, I'd like to smoke, but I quit a year ago. Harry Dean Stanton just gets this smile on his face and says, I've been smoking for 75 years every fucking day and just has a little laugh. And I, I, I was so tickled by that, you know, to pick up from that scene you were talking about, Jeff, this sort of shift from one generation of Lynch, perhaps not so good Nick, to the next one, to return to this figure who just, in Lynch's work, always feels to me like he conjures up an even older sensibility, some, some even more kind of vanished uh, generation. I thought that was really lovely. But yeah, as you said, Jeff, the inner cutting and the mood cutting here became really distinct. I mean, we sort of moved from that scene at the Double R Diner of sort of like, you know, light local comedy to some lovely scenes of Carl just sort of sitting on a bench, looking up at the trees, almost seeming to kind of commune with them in some way to a interesting and yet also immediately kind of off-putting game that he sees being played between a young child and a mother. You know, it, to me, that's the kind of piece of Lynchian absurdity that like initially seems silly and then becomes stranger the more you look at it. The kid sort of running away and then pausing and the mom catching up to him. And all of this while we keep cutting back to Dick Horn, who just seems really upset about this whole kid thing. Like, uh, like call me a kid, huh? Like, huh? Like speeding it in a way that immediately seems a little anxious. Um, and then, of course, the buildup to what we do see happen. Again, in an episode where there was just a lot of like subtle mood shifting. I was surprised at just the sort of, you know, anvil hitting a ground quality of that sort of moment. I mean, I was really struck by how all of that works together as a mood. You have like runaway Richard, like just like 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 furious over being like insulted over being called a kid, and um, juxtaposed with you know old man Carl, uh, Harry Dean Stanton, like in interesting and sort and sort of Lynchian motifs. He always plays like the archetype of old school and respect for old school and and mortality. You know, I'm remembering that. You know, he had one lovely, awesome moment at the end of the straight story in which he plays the brother that Richard Farnsworth is trying to go see on his tractor. And that this brother, like he's had a heart attack and he's ailing and he might die. And, and that wonderful moment where they just sit at the end, they sit on the porch together and just silence with each other and look up at the stars. So to have like, you know, Harry Dean kind of play this archetype again. 
and then watching that wonderful child in a scene of childhood innocence there play out and then intercut with that moment that you described so well too of just pure decency and goodness and generosity and just like of fun at the double R um, with Miriam, who I think might be a school teacher or something like that, just enjoying like two pieces of great cherry pie and being so grateful for it that she leaves a tip that is much bigger than she could possibly afford. And the waitresses, Shelly um, and Heidi, kind of responding by just saying, next time we should treat her. So you have this, the toxic, narcissistic selfishness of youth of Dick Thorne. You have kind of like just this frail, humbled, in the mortality of, of Carl watching this new generation of mother and daughter growing up with the goodness and then you have this just moment of just tragedy and evil that probably plays to everyone as just like coincidence and just bad timing and just chance. But we now know through all of this is like, it could have been avoided because, you know, Richard is just like completely out of control and being irresponsible with himself. And then it all culminates with this scene of this just horrific tragedy of Richard like running over the kid at, at that intersection, which uh, our producer Christina has kind of pointed out is indeed the same intersection from Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, where Laura and her father Leland have that crazy encounter with Mike. So we have this iconic locale within Twin Peaks mythology where this tragedy takes place. And the scene where everyone just gets out of their car to watch it. And you have the Battle of Menti score swelling and they're just horrified by it. And the person that comes forward to minister to this absolutely out of her mind grieving mother and her child is Carl kind of who sees like something yellowy and golden float out of the boy's body or their collective misery. Maybe it's his soul. Maybe it's the essence of pain and sorrow of the moment. And he goes and he attends to them by putting a hand on them and just kind of grieving with them. We should move on because I want to leave time for a character who is sure to become a fan favorite, you know, near and dear in the hearts of, of everyone. T. Teswell in all demographics. I'm talking, of course, about Ike the Spike Statler. Um <laughs> Now, I'm almost kind of unsure of what to make of all this, except to say that I do believe that, you know, Lynch and Frost are so good at just when you think things can't get kind of more ambient and moody and anti-plot and strange, they're very good at just kind of shocking you back into attention. You know, the scene we got with Ike the Spike made me think a lot of the single funniest sequence from David Lynch's career, which is the sort of, you know, hilariously cosmically botched assassination from Mulholland Drive, where the guy who tries to kill one person winds up killing like half of a neighborhood, <laughs> essentially. But uh, we sort of see that, like, we, we sort of see that these different threads of this strange criminal enterprise back in Las Vegas are beginning to be pulled all together. Um, Patrick Fischler, the actor who we saw in way back in part one, this sort of, you know, businessman seeming figure in Las Vegas who seemed to be in contact with some nefarious forces. We may interpret that to be Dirty Cooper or Philip Jeffries or whoever Philip Jeffries is working with. He was was just kind of typing at his computer 
and I believe, Jeff, you can correct me here, a red square appeared on his computer. Uh, That's right. And then he took out a piece of paper with a black circle on it. This paper with the black circle then appeared in an envelope with a picture of the worrier, the woman who we kind of saw trying to mastermind the assassination of Dougie a few episodes ago, and the face of Dougie himself. This envelope was sent to uh, Ike the Spike, a guy whose main hobbies seem to be uh, drinking bullet bourbon and rolling dice in front of his mirror. (laughs) Again, we were talking earlier about like, you know, ah, like the slow burn, like, okay, like, you know, if you see a character in this part, then you might not see them again for three parts or four parts or, you know, who knows if we'll ever see poor Matthew Lillard again. We cut very quickly from him receiving this assignment to him really awfully and brutally and, and you know, funny only to the, into the sense that it was so extreme compared to the rest of the episode, brutally killing the worrier and everyone else in her sort of local office area. Um, and I, I thought just the sort of horror of that was only matched by the fact that it was sort of one more step in this process we've had for a few parts, this feeling of everyone kind of closing in on Dougie, you know, we're, we're left to kind of think of like, oh man, like, if this is the kind of horror that is coming Dougie's way, he is decidedly not prepared for this. Um, and, I, and so I, I thought that was a sort of a sort of nice like shock to the system while also being super disturbing. <laughs> a couple observations about this whole sequence. One is my theory about what Duncan, who is this character who got, I think the character's name is Duncan. He's the businessman who got the red square on his computer. That the interesting kind of actions that happen there, he gets the red square on his computer. He then goes to a safe and he pulls out that piece of paper with the black dot on it, but he uses like a piece of tissue to pull it out, like so that maybe he can't get his fingerprints on it or maybe it's almost like hot to the touch or 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 corrupting to the touch and he doesn't want to touch it and 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 that fits for his character like you get the sense of a guy who's who's who, who resents the position that he's in and is tired of being corrupted by whatever evil he's being sucked into my working theory for this week is the call that Dirty Cooper made from the prison last week triggered this event. So um, Dirty Cooper's call from prison that made every all the electronics go crazy, that call set in motion this event. So the red square is essentially a consequence of the phone call that was made yesterday. And I kind of wonder, Darren, if that sheet of paper with the black hole on it um, even existed in that safe prior to the red square showing up, if maybe that paper was actually never there, you know, so it it materialized with the appearance of that magical square there. But yeah, I, the, in, in our introduction to uh, Ike the Spike in his hotel room, I was most struck by the fact that he was playing dice, but then recording the observation, the results in a notebook. And then when he goes and kills uh, the worrier, Lorraine, who is, by the way, on the phone at that very moment saying something like, three bodies and I think three corpses or something like that. I think what she's referring to the number of people that were killed at Rancho Rosa when those car thieves tried to uh, boost Dougie's car and it blew up on them. 
and I believe that's what she's referring to, but it ends up functioning as foreshadowing because Ike the Spike is going to kill three people, like the, the secretary and then Lorraine the worrier and then the poor innocent bystander who gets cut in the way. Um, and he does it with this sort of psychotic glee, but he mourns. <laughs> He mourns. The only thing that he feels bad about in all of this is the fact that he he did his job so hard and so the violence was. He broke his spike. <laughs> so he just he looks at it and kind of sheds a tear. Oh my spike! Um, but it was, you know what I like the, the idea of rolling dice. Like again, like again in, in an episode that seemed to be playing with the idea of like coincidence or not, like what one person might experience as random, but really there is no such thing as randomness, you know. Um, the idea that the dice, I, I, it captured my imagination for the fact that for the people who were killed there, this must feel like what the hell just happened? Like this completely random, like psycho guy has just come and killed me, like catastrophe striking out of the blue. But there's nothing chance about it, you know, so um, there's explanation for it. But yeah, I, I was interested in all those motifs. Begin to wrap up the Dougie of this episode. Uh, you sort of mentioned earlier, Jeff, we see Dougie back in Agent Dale Cooper's suit, the only suit that uh, fits him since he's a little bit slimmer than his uh, doppelganger was. Uh, he <laughs> arrives back at work at a Lucky 7 insurance agency. Tom Sizemore, uh, who, who, who plays his somewhat sleazy colleague, Anthony, kind of leers at him. He gets called into his boss, Bushnell Mullins's office and the scene that we saw I, I've rewatched it again still not quite sure I have a bead on it but what seemed to happen was he was looking at Dougie's notes on the case files just looking at one page the notes were incoherent but when he put those two notes together Somehow the doodles, which seem to all be kind of ladders and stairwells and these sort of interesting sort of like, you know, swirls, put in together seem to bring clarity. Now, Jeff, you had sort of sent me this really cool video that's been floating around. A lot of people have kind of gone back to the first couple parts of this season and kind of played at the same time two separate sequences. The sequence of Agent Cooper being in the purple room with that strange woman and the scene of Agent Cooper being in the glass box. And there are interesting commonalities that spring up there, sort of, you know, Dark Side of Oz kind of a thing. And I was wondering if that was a validation of that, if we are meant to be taking two separate sequences from Twin Peaks this season and kind of bringing them together and if there's more clarity there. Did you have kind of more of a bead on... We, we Certainly, Bushnell Mullins seemed to change his tune on Dougie very quickly once he kind of saw those two pages kind of laid out together. Well, clearly, like, Bushnell, like, speaks scribble. It would be an interesting analysis to do what you're suggesting, which is to say, kind of like, put the scene in which Dougie actually does the scribbling um, and play it opposite of Bushnell's analysis of the scribbling and see kind of like how things match up. I was kind of more struck by, in this entirety of the sequence, Cooper watching Bushnell, like, I want, I want to call him Battling Bud, um, watching Battling Bud kind of an analyze the, his work and then constantly looking up at the boxing like poster of Bushnell back in his Battling Bud like boxing days. And I kind of got the sense that like, again, 
David Lynch and Mark Frost don't care about what's really happening, like how this guy is making sense of the scribbles. Realistically, we, we might imagine that there's just no way to make sense of all of this. But there seems to be kind of like this idea that that you know that there is this goodness and honesty in battling Bud, and that that shared spiritual quality that he has with Cooper like allows himself ultimately after a lot of frustration to gain sort of illuminated eyes to begin to understand what these doodles are and what they mean. And combined with maybe some compassion and empathy for this longtime employee of his too, it's interesting. So like, I I read it as sort of like what ultimately helps like battling Bud make sense of this is like, is empathy, is compassion, is this spiritual orientation that he has that's similar to Cooper, which is interesting because it juxtaposes with the scene that falls right after it, which is Janie goes and meets with loan sharks, Tommy and Jimmy in the park. Um, again, more childhood motifs um, t- to pay off uh, Dougie's debt. And she gives them this epic scold about the difficulties of, of modern living today and that they're just making it harder. And w- what has happened to compassion and caring about other people's suffering and all of that? which seems to be another major motif and theme of this show. So yeah, like I liked how the, both of those scenes work together. The fact that Jeremy Davies, I love Jeremy Davies so much. Um, the fact that he's become like Hollywood's go-to, like just super sleazebag, like, you know, trailing, seeming to trail dust behind him, like Pigpen from Peanuts type of character. His his line readings in, in this scene with Naomi Watts were so great as she was kind of so like, setting off on her soliloquy. You know, we're not wealthy people. We drive terrible cars. What kind of world are we living in? I just loved his response, like, nevertheless, lady. Like, it was such a delightful, <laughs> such a delightful back and forth there. Um, and uh, yeah, I just, again, f- full shout out to Naomi Watts for just taking this speech that sort of read almost as a parody of your sort of, you know, Occupy Wall Street era politics, but then also seemed entirely sincere. And I thought, you know, was weirdly moving in a way. I, 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 a lot of interesting stuff could have going on in that scene. I, I, I have no sense of like where we're going with Janie E, but I, I was very struck, and we've talked about this offline, Jeff, very struck by the fact that Naomi Watts, who is just an all-time great Lynch uh, heroine in, well, two different, you know, heroines really, in Mulholland Drive and Laura Dern, you know, the sort of reigning Lynch collaborator, them both being in this episode, it felt, you know, interesting to me. And I'm intrigued to see where they kind of go with that. Let's kind of wrap up here, Jeff. Uh, Hawk used his own sort of mini Tibetan method to find what seems to be the next clue. Uh, You know, he dropped a coin in the bathroom. The coin had a picture of a Native American on it. Uh, He sort of looked over at the bottom of the stall, and the stall had been built by Nez Perce Manufacturing. I apologize if I'm mispronouncing the name of this tribe. They are a tribe from the Pacific Northwest. I believe that Hawk is meant to be a member of that tribe. They factor a little bit in the secret history of Twin Peaks, and maybe we'll talk more about that uh, later. But 
the sheet was kind of coming off of the stall. And despite Chad's uh, most sarcastic protestations, Hawk did indeed to take that sheet off. And he found what I believe was just kind of paper with notes written on it. Uh, I immediately sort of thought about, you know, Laura Palmer's secret diary and how a lot of early season two of Twin Peaks is about hunting down these sort of lost pages. But did anything else kind of kind of sparkle for you in, in that kind of sequence? No, I like how Chad was going to come in and apparently t- have a, a nice leisurely sit um, in a stall with a coffee cup and a good book. But but he's such a turd, like a, like a, and, 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 and growing into like um, a pretty good villain in this show. But yeah, like again, what were those pages that were found and put them there? Who put them there? Um, they look like pages of Laura Palmer's diary. I've heard some other speculation online from some Twin Peaks scholars that wonder if maybe Garland Briggs put them there to be found. Again, the themes of sort of chance and coincidence, but maybe not, maybe mystic, maybe just, who knows, uh, factoring into play with that lucky coin of, of Hawks just falling into that stall and he has to go get it, which cr- draws his attention to the stall, to the, to the Nez Pierce-like logo, feeding into the themes of the episode. And then culminating with that really interesting moment to end on, which I thought was rather effective, where we cut to the sort of the control room of the sheriff's office and, and Sheriff Frank Truman's wife, Doris, comes thundering in and just raging at her husband for the car that wasn't fixed or she claims it wasn't fixed, like the guy didn't fix the car after all. And Sheriff Truman is like, Doris, like maybe he just had the parking brake on. What do you mean? Like, are you saying my father doesn't know how to drive? And like, oh, you know, we can, we can have it looked at again if that'll make you feel better. And like, you know, she just kind of like bites back at that. Like, you, like don't you care? Don't, where's your compassion? And he escorts her to his office to kind of process it in quiet. And initially we have our reaction to Doris, which like is probably the reaction of maybe, you know, Chad even to some degree, although not as bad as Chad, which is like, oh, wow, that, that this woman is just out of control and she's overbearing and she's like, ugh. But then like, uh, I believe Maggie, the dispatcher kind of like, you know, like Chad kind of complains about this, you know, I, I you know, if I wouldn't take any shit from a woman like that, blah, blah, blah. And Maggie's like, you, you don't, you don't get it, do you? Right? Like, so apparently we learned that like Frank and Doris had a son who committed suicide and they have not been right since then. She's not been right since then. And you can now kind of completely recontextualize all of her obsessions and fixations and pain over this person who is suffering from grief, who has lost control over her life. And because like, you know, the dispatcher has eyes to know this she has empathy for this, but apparently Chad, who may know some of this, doesn't really care. And he starts mock crying because he couldn't take being a soldier. And this just sort of utter lack of empathy, uh, kind of bringing, to, like, it just spoke volumes about Chad's worldview and maybe some of the worldview that is being kind of like reflected and poked at and critiqued in this episode of like, you know, people growing up out of childhood, out of innocence, into adulthood, and having just to survive it by conforming to its worst parts of it or being callous to toughen up and suck it up to be a soldier through it. And that he has just no grace 
no heart for anyone who can't make that transition. That that kind of like critique, that mean, just like graceless lack of compassion critique for people who just can't take the, the hardness of living and suffer it kind of speaks back to all of the themes of this episode. I don't know. It was an odd beat to end on if you're just looking at this for plot. Get to that moment at the end of the episode and kind of go, that's it? Like, we're not going back to Diane? But as an episode that was really about a collection of moods riffing on a set of themes powered by brilliant filmmaking, well-paced scenes, and beautiful acting, I felt it was just really emotionally spot on. I'm still wrapping my head around this. This season feels intriguingly deathy, not necessarily death-obsessed, just really interested in mortality. And some of it, I think, just comes from, you know, Mark Frost and David Lynch are much older than they were when they first made Twin Peaks. You know, some key characters who were on Twin Peaks have died, and yet they seem to still be on the show in some interesting ways. Tragically, some of the actors who are on this season of the show have passed on. You know, you have these people in this episode like Harry Dean Stanton or um, you know the actor who plays uh, Bushnell Mullins who himself was actually I mean he was he was in you know a movie with Marilyn Monroe like Don Murray has been around in Hollywood for decades now like this interesting just you know mortality and just the flood of people who are a little older who are on this show I'm just kind of fascinated by it it puts me in mind a little bit of the last season of Sopranos which ultimately became just this strange tour through mortality. And there was one episode where literally there were two different funerals happening in the same day. Um, so to me, it's like to sort of cut from that to uh, to the roadhouse, to the bang bang bar. And just kind of, it's almost kind of like maybe the purpose of the musical numbers is kind of just to be like, hey, like, you know, in death we are in life or whatever the quote is. Like, you know, no matter how dark things might have gotten this week, there's apparently a nonstop great line up every night at the roadhouse so nothing to worry about there at least we can kind of sit down and enjoy the music a little bit so i yeah i found that cut to be maybe the most emotional cut to a song and maybe just because i also really like the music of sharon van etten but definitely an interesting note to end on jeff any final thoughts about this episode we are at the one-third mark of this season of twin peaks and you know I kind of went into this thinking, like, I think this will be the end of Act One. And I'm not sure I still think that, but I interesting to see the sort of gradations of movement that we got in this part of the uh, season. Yeah, I, um, my only final thought is, again, I, I was really impacted by the show, the episode as a collection of moods. But nevertheless, Darren, I would love to see some movement in Dougie and moving him toward Cooper and, and moving things along a little bit. Um, unless the show has some really inspired ideas and thoughts on how to, you know, grow Dougie and, and make him kind of like a address other ideas or issues or themes. It's time to move on. That said, really want to affirm that I bet this episode is going to be polarizing among a lot of people at this point in the season, but I think it's probably going to hold up in the larger structure of the season, and I and I really did like it. Everybody out there, we love hearing from you. Uh, love talking about this show with you on Twitter. Some great conversations this past week, mostly about the parentage of Richard Horn, uh, which we thought we'd learn this uh, in this part, and we definitely have not learned that yet. You can tweet at us anytime. 
time. He's at EW Doc Jensen. I'm at Darren Franich, not a doctor. You can send us your longer thoughts at an email address, twinpeaks at EW.com. Quick reminder, if you like this show, go on iTunes, give us a rate and review. Let us know what you think. Rate us by, by stars. And we'll be back same time next Monday to talk about Twin Peaks Part 7. <laughs>